This podcast is brought to you by Endometriosis Australia. For up-to-date information and education, please go to endometriosisaustralia.org. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Donna Chicha, who's worked in many facets of the complementary health industry, including private practice, retail, training, marketing, management, and wholesale since her graduation in classical homeopathy and nutrition. Donna is, importantly, the co-founder and director of Endometriosis Australia, a charity founded in 2012 and operated for the past five years. Donna volunteers full-time for the charity and has developed a diverse set of skills as the operational director. Donna has experience in not-for-profit governance and works with many state and federal government Australian departments in Australia. Her establishment of the Ambassador Program for Endometriosis Australia has led to the development of the Friends of Endometriosis Parliamentary Committee a federal bipartisan approach to ending the silence on endometriosis. And I'm just gonna give a big round of applause right here. Donna has played an integral role in the development of the National Action Plan for Endometriosis and has been named on the steering committee to oversee the implementation of the plan. And she's recently been named in the Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence in the Social Enterprise and Not for profit category. Welcome warmly to FX Medicine. Donna Chicha, how are you? Very well, thank you. You've done a lot. That means you don't have a life. <laughs> My husband likes to say that I volunteer eight days a week, so um, yeah, busy. I've been talking also to a colleague and friend of yours, Dr. Mike Armour, about it's it's not just a passion. You are a warrior for endometriosis. You <laughs> You will break down doors, and finally, in Australia, you have done so. There is breakthroughs that we're seeing now. But first, can you take us through a little bit of your history? Because we need to really backtrack and get an idea of why you have this burning drive to end the myths and poor management of endometriosis in Australia. Well, I suppose it starts with me. Um, I was diagnosed with endometriosis not until I was 31 years old and my first symptoms started at about 16. So I, um, along with um, Professor Jason Abbott and a few others, decided that you know enough was enough. And I think Jason and I had spoken about it um, 10 years prior to actually um, starting up the organisation. Um, we had to be in the right place, I suppose, in the right time in our lives to be able to put all this energy and effort into it. Yeah. Um, my disease was quite advanced and um, quite unusual. So um, I didn't want women to have to keep going through this. You know, the next generation of girls shouldn't think that period pain is normal. And that's just simply is my goal is the next generation of women. You know, we're paving the way so they don't have to um, suffer in silence and they don't have to feel alone and isolated and that we can implement a good standard of care. And uh, that's just simply what how I feel about it all. And 
What drove you to study nutrition? What was it that particularly drew you to that as opposed to something researching something else? Um, I think that re- nutrition and homeopathy had helped me with a lot of um, what I now look back and say was simple um, disorders. And like most people that go into natural therapies um, and wanting to study it, is usually a self-healing oh, yeah. along the way. Yeah. Um, so I, as a young person, I suffered from severe eczema all over my face and um, all over my body. And I went and did some small little homeopathic uh, um, first aid courses up in Cairns. And, um, and that sort of sparked that interest for me and that understanding. So I decided to, um, in my late 20s, to move to Sydney and study um, nutrition and homeopathy. And that was um, an eye-opener for me. And at the same time is when I decided I'd go all natural and get off the um, contraceptive pill. Right. And because that's how I felt was a good thing for me to do. Yep. It's not necessarily everybody else's choice, but that for me, that was what I wanted to do. And then all hell broke loose with my endometriosis. So the symptoms were reared their ugly head in a not so pleasant way. Yeah. And so I then went on another journey of self healing um, with endometriosis and started to investigate that. And I even made my surgeon record, and I think this is the days of VHS. So that's just saying how old I am. How <laughs> one of those um, things. I, <laughs> one of those things, and I made him record my um, the first surgery he did on me. So I then went wow. and showed that around. Um, I studied at Nature Care College, and I then did like show and tell, yeah, and talked about um, endometriosis then, mm. and showed my film and what was happening, um, and how they resection the disease and things like that. That would have been a very challenging and confronting thing for you, but I guess. Also empowering to a way to say, look, guys, there's more to this that we really need to wake up about. So how was it handled back in those days? How was endometriosis thought of and I'm going to say not talked about? How were women treated? I kind of locked out, lucked out, you know, if it was, if we were talking about um, endo lottery, I won the endo lottery. I got Professor Jason Abbott to be my um, surgeon within the public system. So he was doing endometriosis excision, and so I was really lucky, um, one of the very lucky ones that got good care from the get-go. I was in denial for a long time about what was going on, and I wrote assignments on it, and I made booklets, and I showed Jason these booklets that I'd made. He goes, we need this. No one is doing anything. And um, he likes to say that he was a lone man jumping up and down to, um, or a lone person jumping up and down to get attention to endometriosis. And now that there's more jumping up and down to get attention, which is the good thing is we're all coming together. Can I ask then, what would you say as a call out to women um, and also all integrative practitioners who have or are treating women with pain? I think there's a few myths that need to be addressed and um, and I think we have a very good website at Endometriosis Australia with all evidence-based and I know that sometimes that word gets a bit bandied about, mm-hmm. um, but we have really good information. We don't put up anything that isn't factual and that, are, you know, we keep straight to the facts. Um, do we know everything about endometriosis? Absolutely not. But get a good understanding and a good grounding and then listen to some of the women and hear their story. I think that usually is um, the first part. Um, 
that women need and they need to be validated because for years they've never been validated with their pain or their suffering. So that's the first thing we can do as a practitioner is listen and and understand and give them the time because no doubt um, they'll cry and I think um, every time I give a speech somewhere about endometriosis, I have women crying because someone understands them and gets them. Yeah. And I often want to jump off a stage, jump into the crowd to give them a hug to say, it's okay, you're not alone. Yeah. And Which in itself is a travesty line. of medicine, I've got to yes, say. you know, like travesty of everything. And I think we, even society, you know, like I, as I was saying the other day, if we... If a woman went in and said, I'm having a bowel resection due to endometriosis, one, no one's going to ask what's endometriosis, and two, they're not going to say, well, you know, yeah, whatever, bowel resection, that doesn't sound so bad because I don't know what endometriosis is. But if you said, I'm having a bowel resection because I've got cancer, Mm. you would get empathy up the wazoo. So what we need to do is give those women that empathy and understanding because they're going through a 10-hour procedure that might end up with an ileostomy or a colostomy bag. So we need to give them that that understanding, that care and that empathy um, and then support, and that's where natural medicine comes in and complementary medicine comes in so well, we can support them through that. I want to go into the etiology, the pathophysiology and indeed the terminology that we need to use a little bit later, but... Um, just for now, what about the role that Endometriosis Australia plays both in the national um, landscape as well as the global landscape? National landscape, we are a national body. So therefore, we are gathering everybody to use their voice. Um, and we're listening to those patients when they come forward. We're also helping them educate and within their communities educate. Um, we've been um, in discussions with certain remote or rural groups and um, getting their understanding within their own communities, encouraging women to get together and to um, have the, that, the support within themselves and their, within their groups um, and within their town, raise awareness because their voice will get heard. And if you gather the, you all, gather the crowd together of women with endometriosis, then your voice will get heard. Mm. Being a lone person, it usually doesn't get heard. Um, we also need to educate, educate medical um, staff, so whether it's emergency medicine, whether it's nursing, whether it's um, paramedics, whether it's doctors, GPs through to um, specialists, um, that's the role that the National Action Plan will have. And we've got some really good um frameworks of where they want to go with the implementation of the National Action Plan. So that's really good. We're not meeting until um, early November so that the steering committee won't um, decide on how and what first. But the government's released some interesting information of um, Minister Hunt's office has released that uh, I think 400,000 is going towards um, educating nurses. So there'll be a whole unit on in nursing colleges about endometriosis, not just a sentence or a paragraph, but a whole education unit, mm. so, which is really good news. So, I mean, obviously the reason is because this is so common. So let's talk a little bit about the incidence or the prevalence of endometriosis. What are the stats? Um, the stats we have today is one in 10. Do we need more research to validate those stats? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we know that there is 
730, over 730,000 women in Australia um, today that have endometriosis. Diagnosed. um, Diagnosed is different to the the estimated stats and there's no one code for us to have that diagnostic. So, you know, that's money research. Ah, now Um, that's, that's an interesting point. When you're talking mm. about the code, you're talking about a medical code of diagnostics? Um, well, there's no one, you know, different treatments. Yep. And so I don't know what they, we know that like the women's longitudinal study would have um, a lot of information in there, but we haven't got anyone that's mining data to just look for endometriosis. So that's a, another cost. So there's all these, All we have a lot of data out there. We just need a lot of um, money, time and expertise to mine that data, yeah. but we also need to create new studies and implement new structures of how to report and diagnose um, endometriosis. So, And a lot of it gets missed. Yeah. So it's, we, you know, the amount of pet times women have said, I've been diagnosed with appendicitis, but when they went in, it wasn't that. Um, it was endometriosis or I've been told for years I've got IBS. And so we know that there is, um, I think an overseas study has that they've seen at least five doctors and they've been misdiagnosed at mm. least once. Yes. And the delay is between seven and 12 years in diagnostics. And there's some women that could be 20 or 30 years. Yeah, well, so. that's right. This is the thing. So let's talk about the cost of that. It's not just financial. We're talking about a societal cost. Um, yeah, you know, so, costs in pain management, cost in lost hours, lost productivity, um, social issues, relationship issues. My God. It, mental health issues. Mental health issues. Just, we have girls that commit suicide every year. It beggars it. belief why this has not raised, been raised. Forget, forget the, the emotional aspect. And you know, you know what? Forget even the female aspect. If this was a, pol- a political aspect... If this was an economic aspect, it would be looked at now. Oh, and there's also the male loss, you know, the female, the gender aspect is really quite huge. There's a great um, advocate in the US, Nancy Peterson, Mm. and she likes to say that if men had painful sex, the entire US defence budget would be spent in finding a cure. That's right. And it's true, but women are just expected to um, put up with it and we get told to go and have a hysterectomy routinely because they haven't grasped the concept that endometriosis is outside the uterus, not the uterus. And Mm. women often aren't empowered enough to say, no, that's not what I want. So they just go along with it and then they're still in pain and then because they've had a hysterectomy, no one believes that they're still in pain. So it's just this never-ending cycle at the moment. And I often um, had to remind myself at the beginning of starting um, Endometriosis Australia, and we are only just over five years old, but I have to keep reminding myself that the issue is like Mount Everest. You know, that's the size of it. It is huge. But moving one pebble at a time still moves mountains. And mm. so that's my my reminder to myself, we can do these little inroads. And we've made amazing steps in the last 12 months to change the landscape for women going forward with endometriosis. We have done that um, with all the groups coming together, with um, politicians from all walks of life to and from both sides sides of politics coming together and supporting it. And having that happen, um, we've also influenced internationally, and that goes back to your previous question ah, about really? international influence. Right. So yep. 
they we are leading the way in many aspects that it's then empowering because other governments are watching. And they're watching what we're doing. And so kudos to Australian politics. They don't often um, get much um, applaud for what they're doing. Mm. Um, but thank you. All I can say is to everyone in Australian politics that helped make this happen, thank you for um, changing the landscape for women with endometriosis. Let's talk a little bit, though, about endometriosis etiology and the pathophysiology yeah. because we need to get the terminology and the vernacular right, correct? Yep. 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 Let's, let's dive into this. Okay. What is endometriosis and what do we think causes it? Endometriosis is where cells similar, similar to the lining of the uterus right. um, are found elsewhere in the body. Um, so they can be found anywhere from the skin, the joints, around the pelvic region, so bladder, bowels, um, ovaries, and also as far away as the lungs and the brain. So I think there hasn't been any one place in the body that it hasn't been found. So it's quite an insidious disease. What causes it? No idea. <sighs> There's lots of theories, and I don't like to go into theories because all of them have got holes in them like Swiss cheese. Right. What we do know, and this is the bits that I do like, is yeah. what we do know is there's a genetic element to the disease. So if you have a parent or a sister um, or a relative you're seven to eight times more likely to have it. Um, when I know for myself personally that mine came down through my father's side of the family. Right. So I've got cousins with it. So it's not necessarily was my mother, but I, it's come down through my father's side of the family. Um, I only really like to go into facts. If we go into theories, then we it just becomes muddy water. And yeah. it, but it isn't what we know. How are we going to find it out? More research money needs to find the causation and the prevention and management of the disease. Um, at the moment, what we do is um, we cut the disease out. We don't burn it off. Um, and so we excise the disease. And I kind of like to look at that in a homeopathic sense, of, sense and say we're removing the obstacle to cure. So by removing the disease, then we can let our body do um, naturally um, can go in that complementary medicine can go in and support the body. Um, any other questions? <laughs> Lots. <laughs> so when you say genetic component, we're talking about an, an embryological tissue that's gone awry? Is that, is that well, right? Well, no, or? I think it's just genetics of what you've passed down through. So we know that they're doing a genomics study. So mm. uh, um Professor Grant Montgomery mm. so is leading that um, in genetics. And so he has said that it's not one gene. They know that, that it's not one gene that is expressing endometriosis. It's a cluster of genes. Right. And it doesn't seem to be a cl the same cluster of genes for every person. Right. So it's very complex. Like everything with just this disease, it's yeah. not simple, it's quite complex and um, far-reaching. Yeah. We have a lot of women that, you know, it's the family curse, which is for years that their mum has said, don't worry about it, the period pain's normal in our family because it's the family right, curse. Right, right. And so we have a lot of women generalising wow. it and normalising it and so they don't seek treatment. Yeah. But everyone, every woman in their family has that. And so that's where we know um, there was, a, I think there was some twin studies done as well. Yeah. Um, 
but it's it's the gen, it's the genetics. And do we have? Um, is there other influences? There are definitely other influences. You know, some women it turns on. Why is there some identical twins have it and some don't? Um, so there has to be other outside influences, whether it be environment, whether it be immune, whether and it's not autoimmune, just getting that in there first. Um, there's all these other influences in our lives. You know, could that be um, an influence into the creating, you know, into having endometriosis? We yeah. just need more money for research to figure that out. And um, we've got some brilliant um, researchers in Australia. So um, I'd love to see them crack the code, which and, would be awesome. And what about characteristics of the lesions that are found in endometriosis um, versus the severity of the disease? Is there any concordance? Look, there's, an, uh, there's so many anomalies with this disease. So you could have stage one disease mm-hmm. and be completely bedridden, or you could be stage four disease like me and function quite well. So I like to explain it that, you know, if you've got endometriosis and you've only got stage one disease, it could be like, um, you know, one grain of sand in your eye. Yeah. It really freaking hurts. Yeah. So it would really be, you know, each person should be um, treated on their symptoms and that's um, whether it be a medical or whether it be complementary medicine. There is no set guide. Um, I often hear this whole um estrogen dominance theory and for some women it, it they do some women they don't we've got to get rid of it, it as a as a you know a paintbrush though, estrogen, yeah. yeah it's an estrogen driven disease yes but it's you know some women aren't estrogen dominant and so we shouldn't just put everyone in a basket just treat them for their symptoms on um that they present and um what's happening for them as a person yeah, I, th- I think the the problem comes with these, you know, broad yes, paintbrush, broad, broad brush, yeah, yeah, terminologies, and it just doesn't fit, and it doesn't fit on so many in so many conditions. So we really shouldn't use this vernacular, and this is where we get into this vernacular issue. Like, and I get, and I'm very pedantic. Which yes, is the same as but, everyone going on about rightly the, so. the same as the lining of the uterus. Well, it isn't the, the lining of the uterus; it's similar to mm. it. It acts differently. We do need to um, make sure that we get our words correct, um, but we also need to just listen to the patient and treat their symptoms. And um, I think that's something we we need to focus on and not get too, um, as a natural practitioner, is not get too dissuaded into um, fitting into a mould because women with endometriosis don't fit in a mould. Some have comorbid autoimmune disease, some have comorbid polycystic ovarian disease, um, and some of them just have endometriosis, some have adenomyosis. There's, we just have to take them as an individual. And that's right. So you mentioned autoimmunity before. Some yes. people have autoimmune disease as a comorbid, comorbid. condition. That doesn't yes. mean that all do. So that doesn't include endometriosis as an autoimmune disease. No, it doesn't fit the criteria. It doesn't fit the criteria as an autoimmune disease, but can the immune um, the immune system have a role with mm. endometriosis? Absolutely, mm. but it's not autoimmune. Yes. Um, so there is a, there is a difference, and that's where I get quite particular on those type of things. But we would the term be more inflammatory? It well, endometriosis is an inflammatory disease, but they also have you know immune issues. Some have you know have quite 
strong immune issues, um, some don't. Right. So we just need to um, listen and treat accordingly to that person that's sitting right in front of you. Yeah. And one of the other terms that, and, and let's, I want to be open about this, lesions, not tumours, correct? Correct. Right. Lesions. What else do we have to be particular about in using the correct words, particularly when we're talking, when we're um, corresponding with medicos, and we want to make sure that the correct information gets transferred across the different professions? So it's not autoimmune, even though there is inflammatory things. It's not autoimmune in nature, yeah. No, it's not autoimmune in nature, and definitely inflammation plays a huge role, and it is an inflammatory disorder. Um, as far as when you're communicating with medicos, I think you know um, I, I talk to them on a different level because i'm I'm not always I'm not practicing currently, so I talk to them in a, a whole different context. Um, so I often just listen and, and ask them questions and then soak it up like a sponge. But with uh, a patient, we often have to correct them on anatomy. It's usually the basic anatomy is when I'm dealing with patients mm. um, and understanding what is happening in their body. And, you know, if you've got a rupturing ovarian cyst, what's happening within the body, explaining that sort of side to them, understanding the difference between ovarian cysts. There's so many different ovarian cysts. Don't just automatically think that one is a one-stop shop and they're all the same. Right. So understanding because you've got endometriomas, which um, are on the ovaries or around the ovaries as well. So we also have simple cysts, um, you know, follicular cysts, that type of thing, or hemorrhagic. So it's all understanding that they're all different ones and patients don't understand that either. So I think also as a complementary medicine practitioner, it's helping guide them through education um, and what is normal, what's not normal. And um, I don't think many of them know about even ovulation and how the hormones work within um, an ovulatory cycle, you know, a menstrual cycle. Yep. So just keeping it simple and educating them along the way, I think gives them a bit more power and empowers them to make those better decisions for their health as well. When they, when they are talking to medicos, I think as a general, um, as a natural health practitioner, um, keeping, um, keeping a good uh, communication di or good dialogue with um, specialists yeah. is a really good thing. And you're a GP. And I think everyone is finding now that they can hook up with good GPs in their area and good um, open specialists in their area. I know a lot of the um, endometriosis specialists are doing multidisciplinary clinics. And um, Dr. Mike Arm is doing some amazing research in uh, the area of complementary medicine and endometriosis. So that's once we have those evidence-based um, research articles coming through, then it's going to give more credence of what we're doing as natural practitioners as well. Yeah. Um, and having that, I think having that um, dialogue open with your um, with the medicos and pelvic pain physiotherapists. Get to know your local pelvic pain physiotherapist and uh -huh. learn the difference between up training and down training of the pelvic floor. So up training is the Kegels and learning to um, for incontinence, incontinence and those yep. kind of things. Yep. And down training is women with endometriosis have a, a hyper, um, I think they call it hypertonic yeah. um, pelvic floor. So it's always in spasm. So we're trying to teach them to relax it down. 
So that's one of those things that if you can get in and have that nice team around um, your patient and encourage them to have that acupuncturist, have the um, herbalist or nutritionist or um, naturopath and um, pelvic physio, all those kind of things. We have them all together and your local GP that's supportive and understanding. And most women with endometriosis find it really hard to find a GP that understands, has accurate information and supports them. And they're not just put on antidepressants. Is there any any way that either or natural health practitioner or even a layperson can look for appropriate training in endometriosis? No, not really. No. So what about There's the surgeons no with a creed? No, no, no one qualification that says you're an endometriosis excision specialist. But we like to, you know, there's the Australasian Gynecological Endoscopy Society, which is ages.com.au. They often have a good list of current members. Mm-hmm. They aren't all endometriosis excision specialists, but uh-huh. they're surgeons that have had more training. But it's... um. We do encourage people to join the Endometriosis Australia closed discussion group, and that's for patients in Australia yep. to join. And um, they can get recommendations from each other for um, endometriosis excision specialists nearest them. And there's a difference between a general gynecological surgeon and an endometriosis excision specialist. It's, it's a minefield for patients to walk through, and um, but I think if every you know, if we can all work together, that would be, you know, that's the holy grail, isn't it? Yeah. We were mentioning research before. Where is the research taking it now? What are the hot topics of, that, you know, is purported? We don't know, obviously. We haven't got that in. But, but what are the hot topics um, to potentially finding a cause or maybe leading to interesting areas? So there's a few areas that they're looking at. One is an early diagnostic. So one would be like a blood test or a urine test or course, yeah. uh, that type of – and a lot of places have spouted off about, you know, they're going to be releasing something within at the end of the year. And I, I'm not sure that, you know, the information I've had, it's about 10 years away. So that would, you know, and I don't know whether that's just a guideline, but they are a long way off and finding that, um, that little uh, – microRNA that, you know, say that just says that this is, you've more than likely got endometriosis. It would be brilliant to be able to have a blood test to be able to um, sort that out. Um, So we have that um, in the works. There's also, you know, understanding, I don't know whether anyone in Australia is back to understanding the causation, whether there's more research. I know that there's been some research into the um, stem cells in the peritoneal fluid there's been research, um, I think there's some CRISPR research, um, which is way above my pay grade. I don't understand any of that. It's a bit Gene too, editing. It's, yes. So there's a whole heap of stuff on that. And then you've got your genomics that's ongoing. And then we've got other practical things. So there's the economics, there's the um, herbal medicine um, also, just understanding, you know, patients, what they want. So there's been a lot of surveys of understanding. Um, so it, it's wide, you know, it's far-reaching, the areas that um, that they're researching at the moment. Um, they just, you know, they're all doing it on a smell of an oily rag. Mm. And I think it's also women trying to fall pregnant. Now, we know that fertility, not everyone with endometriosis 
is infertile. So we know that 50% of women have um, a fertility issue, but not all of them will go on and not be able to have a child. Some will need some help. Um, but we also know that they think their bodies are failing. You know, and and that you know that sometimes there isn't. I tried to have a second child. I could never have a second child. I did IVF, everything that I could think of. Um, I now look back and go, well, for me, maybe I was not meant to have a second child because endometriosis Australia became my second child, <laughs> and I wouldn't have had time to have endometriosis Australia if I had have had a second child. So um, I think. Um, we have these goals and ideals in place as women with endometriosis um, of what we think our life should be. And sometimes we're thrown a curveball of endometriosis and we have to reassess and think and come up with a new goal. Yeah. So we've got some endo champions that have made, you know, they were mum entrepreneur of the year. They won the gold gong, but she did it from her hospital bed because she has thoracic endometriosis and she couldn't get up, but she had all of her goodies from her business in the Academy Awards gift bag. Right. So she kicked amazing goals. She just reassessed what she could do and what she couldn't do. Mm. And I think we we are allowed to have that moment in time of mourning the loss of what our potential we thought it was going to be, but we can reset our goals and look in a different direction and try and find something that we can achieve and we can do um, with the curveball. So we like to say making lemonade out of lemons. Mm. The stats are really quite um, staggering on women presenting with pain and not being acknowledged. Where I mean, the amount of times we're told those hysterical uteruses, you know, they're the ones that are, you know, the smelling salts, all those things over the years, but yet we can go through so much. So I think that um, the gender bias is also quite present and we need to acknowledge that if a woman is saying she's in pain, then we need to go through and find out how we can help. And then we need to look also with endometriosis, is it, nerve orientated pain is it muscular orientated pain is it lesion orientated pain so it's there can be a whole heap of different reasons why the pain is there and then if we can try and work out to solve the puzzle i think where um, we need to be problem solvers and um come up with is the best fit for that person yes here here like, like you know it's a big issue looking at pain because you can't see it necessarily. You can try and measure acute pain, raised pulse, sweating, guarding, all of that sort of thing. But how do you measure chronic pain? We know that there's issues and yet there's still this male, I'm going to say what male, male judgment um, of female pain. I, I like to go back to, and it may come across as blunt, but you know, I'm very much known for calling a spade a shovel. Um, I, it's not visual. So that's one of the problems yeah. with endometriosis. So if a guy walked into a doctor's surgery and he said, you know, oh, you know, I'm worried about prostate cancer or, you know, I'm worried about something, and the doctor will say, well, you know what, we'll remove your penis and your testicles, and that might but probably won't solve the problem. Women walk in and they'll say, I've, you know, I've got endometriosis, and the doctor says, well, we're going to remove your ovaries and your uterus. And we go, okay. Yeah. Is it? We, as women, need to be empowered to say that's not always the right answer. Mm. We often feel like we want to rip it out because it hurts so much. But, you know, the poor uterus is being blamed for something that it, it's not its fault. It yeah. could be quite perfectly healthy, so why would we remove it? Right. So it's if 
would would it have more value if we could visually see a uterus and the ovaries on the outside? You know, we have have empathy for women that have a double mastectomy. Yeah, yeah. It's visual. Yeah. If the ovaries and the uterus were on the outside, would we have more empathy? So, what about natural therapies? What is the role, and and where is the where does the evidence lie to help women in pain with endo? Ah, uh, look. I think we do lack evidence, but um, as Professor Jason Abbott says in one of our medical webinars on our website, if it works, keep doing it. And so I think we've got to do that for now until we can get more money. And just like endometriosis doesn't have enough research funding, so too does complementary medicine. It doesn't have enough research funding. So if we have stuff that um, we know that the microbiome, naturopaths have been working on microbiomes for the last, you know, 30, 40 years or more, but we now can measure it with research and now it's getting more credence. So I think it's just going to be like that. We've got to find what works for our patient and what doesn't, Um, you know, reducing inflammation, finding a diet that works. I mean, every woman I know in our closed discussion group wants to have, they think they can do it themselves and find the right diet and they can just do it or take herbs off the shelf and just do it and that's going to be fine and we try and encourage them to say you know what you've got a complex disease you really need to get professional care and I think that's the best role that our naturopaths and our nutritionists and our homeopaths and um, herbalists can all play in getting the best information to our clients by listening to what they're going through and coming up with an individual plan that suits them. Um, we've got some good research in with microbiome that helps because women talk about this endo bloat and it, you know, yes, they do get inflammation and bloating, but how can we work as natural practitioners to ease those symptoms? And that this bloating seems to be one of the biggest problems that women um, complain about, you know, that have endometriosis. So we know that Natural therapies would work brilliantly for that sort of stuff. Yeah. So it's a really good thing that we're getting some evidence base to back it up, but also we know we can listen to our patients and they can tell you what's working and what's not. I've used homeopathy really quite well for helping with my nerve pain and hot flushes. So there's going to be different things that work for different people yeah. and trying to encourage people that just because you've seen one naturopath doesn't mean that it doesn't work. If it didn't work for you, keep go and find another naturopath. You've got to find one that fits you and that's, you know, that you click with. And it's no different to doctors. They've got to find the right doctor they click with. Or accountants um, or mechanics. Or accountants, or, exactly. Yeah. So we've got to be, um, uh, we as patients need to be open to um, trying and trying different things and having um, different people involved in our treatment and our care. Um, I like to say that endometriosis is a multifaceted disease mm. that needs a multidisciplinary approach. Well done. So I think that we can all play a role in it. Um, probably the best idea is not doing it all at once, but figuring out which bit's working and which bit's not, so introducing one thing at a time. Um, and trying to figure out as a practitioner how can we fit into that person's lifestyle. Um, giving them a hundred different things to do probably won't fit in with their lifestyle and they'll give up because they're exhausted anyway. Yeah. So they've all got fatigue and they're all exhausted and they're in pain and, and their concentration is fairly limited as well. So um, 
we find pain distracting, distracting. And we can do, you know, there's art therapy. There's all these different things that we know can help with pain and while you're in the middle of pain. Um, so I, I think that complementary medicine and allied therapy is so, so important. Yeah. Um, have your village. We can't do it without our village around. Oh, well done. You know, one of the points I think with regards to pain management, I get that there is going to be some patients, women, in severe pain, such severe pain, they are going to require opioid treatment. But we already know in Australia and indeed around the world that we have a massive opioid dependency issue. It's causing huge untold damage in economically and socially. This is a real issue. The ongoing issue, if you like, with opioid therapy is that the higher you go, the more adverse events you're going to get, and you can get rebound pain from that. This is such an issue. We need options. Now, there are the anti-inflammatories. Well, all anti-inflammatories have a cardiovascular risk, depending on how, how strong they are. So there's an adverse event you've got to now provide for. Um, you can talk paracetamol. We thought the safest, safest drug on earth. Maybe not so. So we really need options for these women, don't we? Absolutely. And then you've also got um, if they're trying to conceive, you can't be on any oh, of that and you can't yeah. be on the hormones. Yeah. And we know that the hormones that I think one stat I saw was up to 50% of the population can't tolerate hormones. So, um, and I know that they trialed the male pill and the mild symptoms the men couldn't handle. So the whole thing was canned where women are just told to put up with those e.g. mild symptoms. Um, and and some of them aren't mild, you know, some of the women that get really bad um, depression and anxiety and stuff from hormonal preparations, and it's not, um, you know, it's not a cure um, for endometriosis and, and some find it useful, some don't. Um, and I think we need to take that into account. So, yes, there isn't anything. The biggest problem with removing the opioids was that there's not enough pain specialists yeah. and the wait list is huge to get into too. And that's really discovering where the origin of your pain is, mm -hmm. you know, helping you find out whether it's nerve. I know a lot of girls with um, very complex disease are doing neurostimulators. Right. Um, a lot of them are doing some hardcore drugs to, you know, they go in and have infusions in the hospital and all that kind of stuff, and they're hardcore. Mm. Um, but that's just to function every day. Wow. So it's um, it's an issue. I think um, we were thrown pills at us as a, as a patient. We were throwing them at us, and now we're told, no, but we're going to take it away. So there wasn't enough education on what are we what's going to be the alternative what can we do how can we support women and which is um, a good timing with the acupuncture research coming out and we've got some other research that needs to get done in that area of helping um, helping the pain helping manage pain yeah. and often in acute flares like so I remember that I didn't have acute flares um, until like mine was very much um, cycle orientated and it was just around my period so once a month I would have an acute flare that I would need medication some women have it every day some women only may only get it at ovulation some may get it at um, menstruation so I think um, if we're talking about um, painkillers used as acute management that's a whole different thing as a as instead of it being a chronic yes. pain management. So I think there was no differentiation between the two. And whilst then 
none of them are nice to be on long term. We've, we've got to come up with alternatives. Mm. I think that's something that there isn't out there. There isn't a lot of choice out there for how we're going to do it. And that's chronic pain. Could be back pain, could be sinus pain, could be headaches. There's just not a huge choice out there mm. um, for any chronic pain sufferer for a long-term effective and uh, low side effect. Yeah. So um, I think we can do, as natural practitioners, we can do a lot to support those people. I live at my osteopaths, just by the way. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, so as you said, multidisciplinary. Multidisciplinary. Um, and, you know, after every surgery, I would go and have massages. Once my ba- my body was, you know, because I my last surgery I had a liver resection, oh, I had oh God, um, uterus um, and cervix and tubes removed, and my uterus and um, was removed because I had adenomyosis and severe fibroids. Um, so it, there was nothing useful left in it. So I, I'm not anti-hysterectomy. I'm just anti-removal of healthy organs. Yes. So um, I'm thinking that's going to cure the problem. Mm-hmm. So I, I went, once I was ready enough, I went to a normal physio. I went to massage therapy because I needed to re-educate my body to not go into those same patterns of pain so the slightest stimuli the body will go back into cramping and spasms where if you go and have those massages and those um, physiotherapy treatments then you can start to re-educate your body so women shouldn't just think that a surgery is going to be a one-stop shop and it's all going to fix it we need to re-educate it and that's where um, all the different modalities can play a role we're now learning about um, the strength of pre-op anxiety is a component of post-op pain, i.e. if you're more anxious prior to surgery, you're going to feel more pain afterwards. And they're now looking at things like, I was reading a paper the other day, melatonin plus GABA and or GABA, I think, um, just prior to surgery, and they had vastly reduced pain medication rates uh, um, post-surgery. I think this was lower back surgery. Do you think stress and the stressors that women have to cope with, i.e., Nowadays, they're not just the mother, teacher, cook, cleaner. They're also the breadwinner. They're they're having to take on so much more. So their stress component is that much more of a factor in their everyday life. Do you think that's a big issue or part of the puzzle? I think it's part of the puzzle and I think do think it is a big issue. I broke my leg a couple of years ago and I had to lay in bed for a couple of months and it was the best thing. I didn't have to figure out what I was going to buy for groceries. I didn't have to figure out the what I was cooking for dinner, laundry, school pickups after school activities. It gave my brain a chance to have a break. And I think um, we don't have – we don't know what downtime is anymore. I yeah. don't think we – we're always on. We're always stimulated with um, electronics and all that kind of stuff. So it's very hard to – I think that's where that meditation and all that kind of stuff um, – and yoga, and while we've got some really good research into yoga and why they why it works so well, is because we can start relaxing the brain. I know for myself, um, I used to get really panicked going in for surgery, and especially when you're knowing you, you know you're having a liver resection and you're going into ICU after it, I was a wee bit freaked out. And Rescue Remedy only did so far for me. Um, I have panic attacks coming out of anesthetic and of course I'm allergic to general anesthetics. So I would talk to my nurses before I went in and they would hold my hand as I was coming out because that was my grounding. I needed to be grounded. Um, I could think about that, but not a lot of people um, have that um, 
if you're going in for a first surgery, yeah. You, yeah, they don't have that experience to understand, you know, when you've been a frequent flyer, you can say, well, that's probably I, I'm coming up with what my ritual is and what works for me. Yeah. Um, but when you're going in for your first surgery, it's very hard to um, have a plan and an effective plan. And I think we can um, we can empower women a little bit more on that pre-surgery stage and how um, maybe just a little bit more explanation on the surgeon's behalf, but also as a natural health practitioner, what can we do to help them um, keep calm and centred um, for what is going to be quite a traumatic experience and what can we do to support them through that, um, whether it be through herbs, whether you know we've got contraindications that we've got to think about for any medicines or anaesthetics that they're going to do. But homeopathics works nicely in that aspect as well. Mm-hmm. Um, can we go and do massages beforehand to help our, get our body prepared? Can we go and do some acupuncture? You know, is that or is there a role for acupuncture pre-surgery? Just as a last thing, what, what would be your call out to natural health practitioners to upskill and to be safe? What do we need to maybe use? Are there any, um, you know, hero herbs, not evidence-based, but maybe from experiential, but also things that we need to let go? Um, we need to let go of the past vernacular around what endometriosis is. Find out the facts. We've got all the facts on our website. Getting End- pregnant. Endometriosis. Endometriosisaustralia.org. Yep. Um, we have the 10 facts there. You know, teenagers aren't too young. Hysterectomy isn't a cure. There is no prevention. Um, we know that um, we can... Get get those facts right. We've got great webinars that are all free, um, oh. and there we don't charge for any educational information on our website. So hop on, find out, brush up on all those terminologies and what's available and what's not for women with endometriosis. And I think we need to really uh, um, listen to the individual and come up with an individual plan. There's some big diets out there, um, whether it be FODMAPs, whether it be GAPS, whether it be, um, you know, all these named ones. Mm. I think we've got to find what works for the lifestyle of the patient and what, um, so what are they going to actually stick with? So try not to be too radical of changing. Don't be, make them a vegan if there's no way that they're ever going to be able to stick with that. Yeah. You know, give them um, little tips and just gradually get them to change. And maybe understanding, I think, as practitioners, we can educate them that it's not going to be fixed in a week. They've had it for the last 20 years. So be realistic about how quickly changes are going to happen and we need to educate them that it's not, you know, in two weeks' time you're not going to feel 100% and you're not going to be out there running a marathon. That's just not going to happen. But we can gradually help be part of your team and gradually help you get better and let's pick one little symptom. What's your worst one? Um, Is it fatigue? What's the one that we can work on the most to help um, get you where you need to get to? You know, because fatigue is such a big thing and it wasn't talked about. Mm. And um, fatigue is such a big thing for women with endometriosis because we're just still trying to keep up. Understanding that there's only four stages of endometriosis, no matter how creative others get, there is only four stages of endometriosis. Um, And just because you've got stage four, it doesn't make it any worse than someone with stage one. They could still have really bad pain. Um, The pain is not an indicator of the severity of the disease. And we've got things um, like... Uh, DIE ultrasounds, which is deep um, infiltrating endometriosis ultrasounds that are available by select few. There's not many 
It's all about the skills of the technician, whether it be your GP, your naturopath, your um, surgeon, your um, sonographer. It's all about the skills of the technician as opposed to the actual modality. Um, but finding a DIE ultrasound um, place in Sydney, we've got some great ones, um, You and Melbourne has got some great ones too. So what you can do is that will pick up stage severe stage 3 and 4 disease and it'll help map uh, for the surgeons, but it also gives the patient an understanding of where and what they're doing. Yeah. Bowel symptoms, bladder symptoms, you know, what can we do to reduce the inflammation in the bladder, you know, to make it easier for them to go to the bathroom? Um, bowel's the same thing. How can we reduce the inflammation in the bowel? Um, how can we change their diet that allows it? Because if they have a bowel resection, they're going to be on a no-fibre or low-fibre diet. Mm. So how can we make that the most wholesome to um, someone who's had a bowel resection because it's instead of just white. Yeah. Because it's not nice. No. For anyone's bowel. Ever. ever. But that's what they get given. So how can we support and come up with a better way of dealing with um, people that have gone through bowel resections so that they – and they tend to have long-going – we call it the legacy of the disease. So they may not have um, any – active disease but they might have a legacy of the disease that they've got to live with and how can we manage those symptoms and and um and give them a better quality of life i think endometriosis is a quality of life disease and natural practitioners can do so much to increase their quality of life donna chicha i i have to say your burden is the savior of the next generation of girls not just in australia but around the world um I can't thank you enough for your absolute dedication and not just for you, it's for others. I I just can't thank you enough for for bringing endometriosis to the forefront of the minds of the Australian public and, God forbid, the politicians um, in not just Australia and from from then on around the world. Thank you so much for your dedication and passion that's driving... Um, looking into endometriosis and caring for women with endometriosis with, you know, lesser judgment and greater, as I said, care. Well done. Thank you for having me. (laughs) This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. FX Medicine is your gateway to news, resources and information on the safe, evidence-based approach to practising complementary and integrative medicine. Visit fxmedicine.com.au to sign up for e-news and stay up to date with the latest research, podcasts and industry information.